back to Sports and Society. We're here back on Sunday. It's April 19th. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? Yeah, doing well enough. A little sleepy this morning, but nonetheless glad to be talking about a sports world that somehow is managing to still churn out news and interesting things uh, without any sports actually being played. That is a great point. What is it that stuck out to you? So a few things this week were in the forefront for me, and they're kind of under the banner of how many of the alterations that are being proposed in a number of sports uh, coincide with uh, alterations that would be good for abating climate change. Mm. And... As I feel the climate change conversation is being ushered into the coronavirus conversation, just kind of at large, I this is like my very amateur, just personal perspective on how it came about this way. But I feel like for the first uh, couple weeks when things started to shut down, uh, climate change wasn't talked about all that much and it didn't make it to the front pages. And within the last two weeks now, I feel like it's popping up more and more. And I uh, appreciate and find it fascinating to start thinking about how these broad scope institutional changes that are being mandated and being ushered in are uh, so closely tied to what many project the future is going to be like insofar as these institutions are going to have to make massive changes and then also personally we're going to have to make changes and a lot of those changes are going to have to be mandated and so that mindset that we're all in right now i i think is is a a ripe space for considering what uh life under uh drastic climate change induced changes is going to be like so for example uh, a lot of these um, uh, sports are thinking about shortening their seasons, which would be good for climate change. I think at large, uh, Major League Baseball is playing around with the idea of having the season all in Arizona. So all the teams mm-hmm. play on like these 16 fields that are within like five square miles of each other, uh, which would be fascinating to think about. It kind of has that like Las Vegas idea mm-hmm. that like you would go to Arizona for baseball rather than baseball coming to you. Mm. Uh, and that's paired with um, less international travel. And so these sports that require international travel are considering like, well, that's just not possible and not going to be for a really long time. And then, of course, sports without fans. So fans are the number one culprit, I feel like, in uh climate change in sports and so sports without fans would be really interesting and then of course the idea of uh competing digitally so we mentioned last week while the nba's horse tournament was kind of silly in some ways and just kind of something fun and good-hearted it, it raised an interesting question of like is in the long term is there a version of uh athletic competition that's going to be held online uh, because of climate change. And while that's probably not in our lifetime, I I think the earth is going to have to consider that question at some point in time. Uh, So all those things make me think that uh, um, 
or just point out that it's really interesting to think about how these alterations would be good for abating climate change. Hmm. That's interesting because I think that brings to me this bigger picture question, which goes back to my graduate research. So, of course, I'm going to think about it. But um, <laughs> and uh, you're well aware of this research as well. But um, you know, there's a uh, those that work in the environmental field understand that. Uh, local environmental action in and of itself is never going to be enough. And so there needs to be collective action. And so what we're seeing right now is a massive collective response with some pushback from some assholes that we will not mention at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, what we're seeing is is perhaps the largest, particularly in the United States, the largest collective understanding and action that we have seen in a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, you know, perhaps dating back to World War II type era, right. um, uh, and understanding that we need to work together towards a common goal, uh, uh, and just that's what we would require to do anything significant on climate change. And I, uh, it, it raises the possibility that we're still able to do those kind of things, although, you know, our leadership seems to be falling apart a little bit. Um, that's uh, sarcasm you hear in my voice right there. Um, <laughs> But there is still capacity if we look at some of the gubernatorial actions, some of these state-level actions to do these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Indeed, I think while there's plenty to lament and fear about climate change, I, I agree and kind of find a little glimmer of hope in the collective capacity that is in the forefront right now, uh, that there, there is, uh, the possibility for collective action is seemingly enough right now, uh, as hope is hard to come by. So, um, I, I, I would spin it in a somewhat positive way, this whole conversation. Well, I think it's interesting. There's some data. So here in Virginia, we have not been nearly as hard hit as many places have been. Um, and so, uh, there's an argument to be made that, you know, we shouldn't have particularly harsh standards in place, but we do have a stay at home order. It's not the, the most strict, uh, stay at home order in the country, but, um, interestingly, even, uh, with shutting down most non-essential businesses, um, and all this kind of stuff, uh, the governor's, uh, support level last week i think graded out at 75 percent in the most recent Mm -hmm. poll which is you know in our partisan era uh not a particularly common thing to see and so that seems to suggest to me that there's a there's a widespread understanding and appreciation of those kind of acts even when we recognize how dangerous they are Mm -hmm. and how damaging they are to the lives of some Mm mm-hmm I'm I'm feeling a a need to be careful here because given that both of us have master's degree in this topic, uh, we could yes. unravel our our both of our uh, theses at this moment in time. <laughs> but it, it it comes back to I think what you and I both feel so strongly is it's funny that we were just talking about this off air and maybe if you wanted to share on here what your next project is, but. Uh, how significant and important science communication is. Mm-hmm. And like it just the obvious here is that because coronavirus uh, presents an immediate threat and that threat is easily understood because of the dire consequences of it and the ways in which it changes our perspective of self and of community and of state and of country uh, that 
kind of capacity for institutional change in the immediate is increased uh, such that you can combat the challenge where with climate change, the number one issue, right, is communication Mm -hmm. Uh, for one that uh, is willing to be patient and dig in with the information about climate change and is not swayed by uh, these lobbyists that are pushing a bottom line rationale. It's easy to see that climate change is as dire or more dire uh, in some ways than something like a, a, a pandemic or virus that it's a it's a pandemic that is already here and has been for a while and is not going anywhere for a long time. Um, it's just a matter of perspective and communicating that perspective. Well, and for those that aren't aware of this as well, it's probably a, a, an appropriate time to point out that all of the models on climate change suggested that they it makes these kind of outbreaks more common and more uh, significant mm-hmm. because we're coming in contact with new animals. New animals are in new places. Um, new situations can exist in different places because of the temperature raise that more or less mm-hmm. common freezes. Um all of this has led to the presumption that there will be more of this uh, stuff with climate change. So you could argue even that this is a direct, uh, there is a, a semi-direct line that can be drawn from those incidents to what's happening now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Anyway. Well, what about you? What are you paying attention to? So several things like you popped up on my radar this week. Um, a couple quick ones to kind of get out of the way uh, before I get to, I think, my most interesting one. Um, is just, A, uh, there's some stuff that's come out from the Premier League about how many people would have to be involved even if fans were not in the stands. Right. Uh, and they're, uh, you know, to broadcast a game, it seems like the number is about 300 folks would have to be at the stadium to do that uh so i mean that kind of gives a picture of how far away i think we are from being able to really do this mm-hmm. um i also want to note that i think this is absurd but the tour de france has officially leveled new dates for august and september mm-hmm. i just cannot fathom that happening yeah. particularly in a sport where it's so hard to control contact with other folks i mean you've got 170 folks that are pushing their bodies to the absolute limit. So they are essentially immunocompromised, all uh, crammed together with mm-hmm. going fast so that all of the spittle and everything is going mm-hmm. everywhere. I just can't fathom that going ahead, but uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. They're being ambitious. Um, but then perhaps the most interesting thing from this past week um, and what uh, I continue to be mesmerized by is uh, Djokovic's conversations with other tennis stars. Oh, I didn't know this was happening. Yes, this has uh, been so cool. So he's done at least two that I know of. He may have done more, but um, he's had hour-long Instagram Live conversations with both Andy Murray and Stan Wawrinka. Wow. Uh, and it's just so uh, – the conversations have been phenomenal, just in the sense of like ranging from all over the place back to tennis, um, to the state of the world, what they're going to do when tennis is over for them. Um and to hear these like absolute stars of the game do this in an unscripted way together, mm-hmm. uh, apparently uh, uh, the Andy Murray one in particular has gotten all kinds of acclaim because apparently these guys have been you know, they've been playing each other since they were eleven, Djokovic right. and Andy Murray, um, but they had never sat down to have like a conversation together. And here, apparently, 
uh, everyone is just, it flowed amazingly. Everyone, uh, they were happy. They were laughing the whole time. And just to see wow. these stars of the game, mm-hmm. like, I mean, it's, you know, I just cannot fathom LeBron and KD sitting down in that open of a forum to have that kind of conversation. And I would love it to happen. And so to see it there, I hope that we see more of that kind of stuff moving forward. That raises so many interesting thoughts for me. My my first thought was, of course, Djokovic would do that, which is like an interesting thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like that he has presented himself in such a way that that uh, feels expected for him. Mm-hmm. Says a lot about who and what he is and how he presents himself to the world. And I think looking at him under a microscope, you see an individual that has changed uh, an incredible amount Mm -hmm. from when they first became a top-level tennis player and celebrity to what he is now. And then your point there about uh, LeBron and KD having a conversation like that and how it would contrast with Andy Murray and Djokovic says something about the insulation around um, maybe – This is what would be interesting to kind of unpack is like while LeBron and KD, like while we do have a lot of access to them, they're still insulated in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe uh, that insulation is self-protection, which I think in some ways you could argue they need uh, in that access to LeBron and KD for them comes with a lot of risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas a tennis star maybe has less risk, um, especially someone like Stan Wawrinka. Um, I mean, uh, he's one of the greatest players in the last 50 years, yet uh, I would say a majority, uh, a vast majority of sports mm-hmm. fans even don't know who he is. Um, yet he's one of the greatest tennis players in the last 50 years. So, so that's interesting. Well, and I think it's... Um, I, 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 I have grown to love Djokovic over the last few years, I have to say. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so I just find it so compelling because um, I think it also speaks to what we want to see the game to be, um, which is this idea. And I think we see this often with – so my favorite thing, so to, spoiler alert, um, even though you will have seen it in the title, we're going to talk about Michael Jordan uh, in this uh, documentary that's coming up here in a little bit. And to prep for this, I've been watching these uh, people, other players talk about Jordan. Um, mm-hmm. And I, some of my favorite sports content is to watch things like the NBA. TNT did this a few years ago, maybe more than a few, maybe you know, five, seven, ten years ago, where they would have these recently retired players come in and just talk about things. So they have like five or seven of them in the room together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's Chris Webber, Steve Kerr. Reggie Miller, um, mm-hmm. and they're all like, it's just so fun to hear them talk about what life was like for them mm-hmm. in the NBA. And we don't, we almost never get to see it when they're still competing. And so to see it in that moment, and I would hope that in this moment of reflection right now, we get to see more players kind of look at themselves honestly and stuff. Um, but man, it's uh, it's super compelling when you get to see these uh, when it goes back i suppose on some level to our other main thesis of this whole podcast which is about humanizing these games mm-hmm. uh, that that's what they're doing when they when they when they're open in public like this is humanizing themselves to a much greater degree mm-hmm. 
It makes me curious too about. I have I I haven't done research on it, but knowing that in the tennis world, a lot of lower level tennis players are clamoring for acknowledgement, and primarily through financials, saying that like we are as much a part of the ATP as those top four stars, and this is crushing us. Like you know, a lot of most of them uh, outside the top fifty, like literally live paycheck to paycheck. While they like operate at a high um, overall budget in a season, that's it, to operate on the uh, international tour is a huge budgetary cost, and so a lot of them, without these week-to-week paychecks, are are unable to keep their teams employed, are un- unable to keep their memberships at like mm-hmm. certain tennis clubs, um, and so it kind of raises an interesting question about. Um, labor rights and collectivizing amongst a sport that is based on individual achievement. Um, but yet how, uh, the tour is necessary. And so how do you negotiate that? It's mm-hmm. an interesting question. It, well, and apparently I did not hear this particular portion, but um, Djokovic said that he's recently had conversations with Federer and Nadal together about how to support those players that are on the lower levels of the, of the system, which is a whole nother interesting component mm-hmm. to think about mm-hmm. yeah that's fascinating so they at least they seem to recognize maybe it, i would think the importance but if not the importance at least the uh the toll that this is taking on those folks at the lower level which is probably good to hear yeah particularly federer and nadal who seem so in their ivory castle type thing so right yeah i ha- i was I, we may have talked about it but i did see that Federer has been doing like trick shot challenges. Mm-hmm. I've I I watched a couple of them. They were pretty entertaining, but still uh, evidence of what you said a little bit. <laughs> um, the access to Federer feels a little bit like access to someone like LeBron. Yeah. It's very, very tailored. Well, it's, I mean, it's very much that Ronaldo and Messi are the same ways. Mm-hmm. You know, right. I mean, so it makes me think in some ways, like who would that, who would that athlete that would do this, that would be big enough to be relevant in this way, but also um, willing to do this. I mean, like JJ Reddick has a podcast, which yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you've listened to, but it's actually fairly compelling sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he's not like on that same level. Right. That, that would be like John Eisner doing this. So it's like mm-hmm. who who right. would be the basketball player that you know would be willing to do this? And I don't know who that person would be. Right. Oh, and it makes me think of LeBron's show, The Shop, mm-hmm. uh, which is like um, produced at the highest level possible. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, they are, arguably, I haven't seen a talk show as highly produced as his. So in that way, it, it kind of spells a different story. Yeah, I mean, there's something about A, being live um, mm-hmm. and to begin with, but then being live on like a Skype call on live on Instagram is a total... Mm-hmm. Like it's just hey, we're here. We want to chat with you. So right, right. Yeah, that seems like a good segue into our main topic too. It does. So this week uh, we're going to talk about Michael Jordan. Um, in my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest basketball player ever. Um, uh, and we're pretty jazzed. I think I'll speak for myself. I don't know about you, Kyle, but about this documentary series coming out. 
that will start tonight uh, and then go the next four Sunday nights, two hours each. Um, that ESPN has moved this up. Apparently, they have not finished producing and editing the final episode, which is kind of fun to think about <laughs> at yeah. this point. So, um, but yeah, what are you thinking about this? Yeah, I I found one of the most interesting pieces in reading about and watching some clips from this documentary to be the story of how it was made. And so that being the connection to what we were just talking about is access to these athletes and how it comes about and what form and to what extent it is controlled by the athlete. And I think the story here that stands out to me is that Adam Silver uh, worked for NBA Entertainment uh, in 1997. And apparently, I'm sure the others were part of his team that came up with this idea, but Adam Silver getting the credit for coming up with the idea of following the 1998 season uh, start to finish uh, f- with the intention of uh, memorializing what many thought was going to be Jordan's last season. And I think what stands out the most within that narrative is that Adam Silver had the forethought to go to Jordan, knowing that Jordan probably would not want to do this. But he said, you can have complete control over the footage. We won't touch it. We won't sell it. We won't let anyone else even view it uh, unless you want something to happen with it. Hmm. Uh, And so it sat in a vault in New Jersey uh, until two years ago. And it was uh, Clay Thompson's uncle, uh, who is a movie producer and documentarian, that finally got access to Jordan. And they put together just some, like, um, I don't know what they're called, like cartoon scripts for what the documentary would look like. And he still, like, wasn't fully in on it. And then it was... um, when Thompson had his like credits listed at the end of this potential script, the Jordan saw that Thompson made the Iverson documentary Hmm. and Jordan's like, wow, that's like one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. I'm in, let's do it. Hmm. Uh, And there's, there's speculation that this is a very Jordan thing to do is to like wait until the timing was right. And it gets even more like, kind of like biography type questions here that are get interesting and significant mm-hmm. of like who and what Jordan is and how huge he is and how his hugeness is not just because he was the greatest basketball player of all time, but he, depending on how you want to look at it, managed his greatness uh, and exploited his own greatness uh, for himself. Um, and so in that way that he's the one that had control over this story, uh, it, it seems significant and kind of worth unpacking a little bit. Well, it does. And I think that that's, uh, you know, it speaks exactly to what we were talking about before. That I think that you could make an argument that Michael Jordan was the one that kind of created this athlete as a standoff individual mm-hmm. persona more than perhaps anybody else that we can think of. I mean, it's not that that wasn't happening before he just i think took it to another level mhm yeah absolutely yeah and so to your question too about like the greatest of all time i i think that is a fun debate always to have <laughs> Uh, I think some other questions that are alongside that is is he the most famous is he the most important has he had the most impact 
are like questions that are as interesting to me is like, is he the actual greatest basketball player of mm-hmm. all time? I, I agree. Cause I, for me, they all go together. I don't, you know, if we were to say who is the best at playing the game of basketball, I think there's an argument to be made that LeBron or Wilt or Kareem or uh, some of these other folks are, are better, but nobody, I think, uh, I think uh, stands in that pantheon of, um, phenomenal prowess as a basketball player but also the icon status that everyone has i just you know maybe i'm not a young person these days um um but uh i am fairly certain from everything i hear from folks that have that contact that lebron's impact on this the teenagers the middle schoolers now is not the same as i think what jordan was for you and i Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that that just speaks to, and I think that there's an argument to be made that, you know, if I were going to say anyone in terms of global impact versus Jordan, I mean, Yao Ming might be the one that I would go to mm-hmm. over that. Um, uh, his impact was just that huge. Right. Uh, and his brand remains that strong to this mm-hmm. point. I mean, they're still wearing Jordans. Like, it's still yep. the thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah, again, like Kobe, you could argue maybe a better player, but Kobe was who Kobe was in large part because of who Jordan was. Right. So that I think that's an interesting piece. You raised a couple of things I want to touch on there. One is I don't think there's LeBron. I don't think there's Kobe. I don't think there's Tiger Woods. I don't think there's Roger Federer uh, without Michael Jordan. And to get into the more specifics of that, it's how he negotiated contracts. It's how he kind of married himself with certain brands and how he alighted to the world to what is possible between a partnership between a brand and an athlete. And none of those athletes we just listed off would be what they were without Michael Jordan literally like paving that road that no one had ever done that before. Uh, and even looking back on uh, the like early 90s contracts that basketball players were signing, you know, I mean, they were like losing massively in the power game. Uh, and revenue sharing, the divide was, I mean, it's still great today, uh, as in players don't have near the power that owners do or even that the networks do that, him rights to these television contracts but at any rate uh it was um it, it horrendous <laughs> in the late 80s and early 90s when michael jordan came on the scene and the extent to which that changed i think you you just have to look at michael jordan as the progenitor of that but then also that cultural impact piece um I watched a clip, an extended clip from the documentary that's going to air tonight, and uh, Michael Wilbon was talking, and I love Michael Wilbon for many reasons, but um, he's from Chicago, and so he's always kind of like situated himself. It's like, uh, if if you want to have a Michael Jordan conversation or a Michael Jordan argument, you kind of have to go through Wilbon, which I think is an interesting kind of like mm-hmm. aside sports media thing. At any rate, he says uh, there's really only one list, and on that list is Babe Ruth, Muhammad Ali, and Michael Jordan. Mm. Uh, And that 
if you put those three together, it makes it harder to even put like a Yao Ming on the list or a LeBron on the list because then you have to compare them with Babe Ruth and Muhammad Ali as well. And you realize quite quickly that they don't have that. Like the three of them together on a list kind of creates this triumvirate type power thing, which is even more power than the individual. Um, and I, I think for that reason, it's because it like stretches across history and it stretches across borders and it stretches across so, uh, social issues, political issues, economic issues. It's it's kind of all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the hugeness is almost impossible to get at, um, which I find fascinating. Yeah, that, I think it is. And I think um, the only person that I would consider adding to that list would be Tiger Woods. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think what we're talking about here are athletes that transcend their sport and elevate sports in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tiger's Woods legacy has obviously been a little bit changed in the last few years as Jordan's legacy has been changed in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there was a time when Tiger changed that conversation. I think, yeah, you're right. That that argument goes back to Jordan in some ways, but his ability to put golf on that sphere is, I think, uh, uh, an immense accomplishment that we shouldn't uh, that we shouldn't think less of at this point. But um, yeah, that's interesting, Babe Ruth. Um, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was a it, that comment really caught me. I was like, that that's a fascinating way of kind of couching the conversation and like, I don't know, adding dimensions to that like what seems like a simple conversation of like who's the greatest of all time you know or who's like really i feel like what we're asking often is like how famous are they or like how much do we know about them Mm -hmm. or how much are they in our like public consciousness but when you put three of them together it it does something it's like it, it alters the nature of the conversation, which I find worthwhile and like super insightful, which hmm. is why I love Wilbon. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I wanted to touch on the piece too of uh, impact on our childhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can recall buying Michael Jordans and not really wanting them. But they're not being space in my childhood brain for doing something else. Hmm. Uh, I can also recall literally having the thought as a child uh, that I didn't want to be like Mike, which was like right the catchphrase, <laughs> and not having access for even talking about that. Like I, I, you know, like going to a basketball practice when I was like nine years old, and like not wanting to like be the player that Michael Jordan was, which I think like every kid felt the pressure that you had to be this like uh, kind of like s- small forward slash two that could like get points whenever they needed them. Um, so even in that like small case of like, there, for, in my very personal experience, like there wasn't space to even not want to be like Mike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, I remember that um, I was never a big Jordan fan while he was playing it's only been you know as time has gone by I've come to appreciate what he did in the basketball sense but it was very much a you know I remember watching that that last uh, time that last time with the Bulls and that watching that finals and uh, kind of rooting for the jazz there um, mm-hmm. uh, 
just because I think I've always pulled for the underdog. But looking back, man, it's it's hard to overstate how much impact he had on our childhoods, just in terms of, I don't know if there's anybody else we saw more. I mean, I think we saw more of Jordan than we did uh, Bush or Clinton growing up. Um, yeah. That would be fascinating to have data on that. Of like right the amount of time that our eyes have seen mm-hmm. an individual. Yeah, I can't. That's what makes me think your point of Tiger Woods is a good point. Of I, I would imagine our eyes have seen as much Tiger as they have Michael Jordan, if not more. Well, um, I think the thing that stands out to me as well in this conversation is that that because I think there are athletes now that have that kind of pull on young people. I mean, mm-hmm. I mentioned I don't think LeBron d- does, but I think that that's partly just because the league, partly and largely due to Jordan's impact, the league is much stronger now than it's ever been. And so there's mm-hmm. space for more stars than there have ever been. So that impact, like back in uh, back in Jordan's day, I mean, I was, uh, I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan. Um, mm-hmm. and that's who I tried to model my game after. It's no wonder I never went anywhere. Uh, <laughs> Oh. <laughs> that's such an awesome idol I love that you might have been like one of the only kids in America wanting to be like the Kimbe Matumbo dude this that uh, there's this Hawks team I, I was the huge fan of this Hawks team Mookie Blaylock Steve Smith and Dikembe Matumbo man I rooted for them so hard back then <laughs> that's amazing I love that um, but uh, I think you know, what stands out to me is that I don't, uh, you know, even now, you know, whether it's Lillard or Steph has clearly captivated the young folks these days. Um, mm-hmm. The young folks, I sound like an 80-year-old. Um, we're pretty old. We're pretty old. We're, we're older than our years, even. <laughs> I don't know about you. I'm getting old enough that I'm like, what is this coronavirus? How old do I have to be for that to impact me? Seriously? Uh but uh, anyway, uh, I think what's particularly compelling is the uh, way that he impacted the other players of the game mm-hmm. um, and just like the fear of mm-hmm. – oh, and that's where, again, I, it comes down to the the Tiger thing. I mean, uh, I think no one else instilled like that, hey, we don't want to piss this guy off kind of mentality more than Jordan has. Right. Uh, and I think there's a ton of respect for LeBron, but nobody's calling LeBron black Jesus. Uh, right. And no one's saying, Hey, we don't, don't go up against him. Right. Um, you know, these stories that come out about like, you know, uh, Byron Scott had one. He's like, you know, I always try to be nice to him. You know, I'd be like, good shot. Good shot, Michael. Cause I didn't want to matter. Right. Right. And he talked, talked about how there was right. a game. He was out injured and Michael came up to him. He's like, Hey, you're not playing that. Who's going to be guarding me? And he's like, he said who it was going to be. He's like, oh, 50. Uh, and he dropped 54. <laughs> and it's like, of course, like, he just, his ability to do that and then follow it up was so right. amazing. Right. Um, and like, the stories about him, Magic Johnson has a story about him and the dream team that they're scrimmaging in the dream team. And, their uh magic's team was winning and magic said he never trash talked except for this one time in his entire career uh and he said like you're gonna have to be air jordan if you want to win this thing and of course he just went off after that mm-hmm. point he said his eyes got real big he started sticking out his tongue and mm-hmm. he just went off and took over the game and like those stories are endless and i think that that's something that we'll never perhaps see again as an athlete that has that 
level of ability to rise to those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think that Kobe and Tiger are maybe the only two, other two uh, that can even be mm-hmm. talked about in that space. Um, part of me too always wants to put Shaq right behind there. Uh, of that, like I feel like he had that too to some extent. Um, of that, within the right system with the right players around him, he was capable of having an effect on the game like few other individuals could. Um, it also is uh, to your point too about like how maybe it is more difficult now for someone to achieve Michael Jordan-like status because it's so saturated at the top. Mm-hmm. And to kind of think about what we mean by that. And back, it, it has me thinking along the lines of what I was saying before of Michael Jordan having been the one that paved the route to where these athletes could become um, billionaires eventually. Um, I find I think I had to look up this morning, but uh, Michael Jordan's worth two point two billion, which is yeah. <laughs> ungodly. Uh, I can recall the, this is kind of an aside from where I was going, but uh, I can remember like where I was when I learned that he had bought a plane. And being just so amazed by that. I think I was in eighth grade. And I, I was like, just could not get my head around the thought of uh, an individual, an athlete buying their own plane. Uh, just kind of blew my mind. But at any rate, it, that would be pretty normal, I feel like, mm-hmm. now. right? Like, um, and it's because so many athletes are capable of making so much money right now. And it's partly because I would argue... I think um, I, this is where it gets into that argument of like pure basketball stuff mm-hmm. that I don't feel as confident in, but I have a feeling that it's harder to be a Michael Jordan now because there's like 50 players in the NBA that could have like pushed back against Michael a little bit more, whereas like he maybe only had like two or three individuals that were as good as he was. Um, whereas now like every team just has these just incredible, incredible athletes on it. And I would just, I'm, I'm sure basketball people would have arguments against that, but I just have a feeling that the talent is so much more saturated at a high level than it was when he was playing. See, I'm going to disagree with you on this. Um, okay. I think, I think he would continue to dominate now. And I think it's largely because of his game. Um, that I think what we saw last year in the playoffs was Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors won the playoffs, uh, won the finals because he could do what Jordan did, um, mm-hmm. which is you can get a shot, you can get your shot where anytime you want. Um, yeah, and I think that the part of that is that um, the reason that I think some of us don't enjoy basketball as much uh, now is I think uh, it could be, although I'm, I, you know. Let me take that back. Don't enjoy the stars as much now as as they have in the past, is because the stars have become uh, focused on these analytics stuff. So I think when we look at the regular season, yeah, James Harden is freaking phenomenal. But when we get to the postseason and people start playing defense, um, and let's not forget what time was like when Jordan was playing. Like these guys hit each other. Mm-hmm. You know, they were they were. This was a much different game back then. Um, yeah. So there's that element, and he was able to do it in that environment, which I think speaks, again, to uh, 
how incredible he was. But I think it's also about, you know, the mid-range game doesn't matter until conference finals and the finals. And then it's the most important thing. Who can have a guy that can get their own shot and hit it 50 to 60% of the time? Um, because you're not going to get layups. You're not going to get open threes anymore. And I think Lebr- uh, what we see is that Kawhi could do that. And that's what um, that's what Jordan could do. And I think that when we see these other guys from a pure basketball perspective, LeBron is an amazing basketball player, but he's best, you know, he's got this weakness. He doesn't love to shoot mid-range and three-point mm-hmm. shots. And so, you know, and that means so if you put a big guy in the middle and you congest the lane, it's a, a semi-effective way to limit his effectiveness. And he's shown and grown to be better than that. But um, there's still like a game plan. And I just think that there's no game plan for Jordan that he could do other than putting another defender on him, which leaves you, of course, uh, wildly susceptible, susceptible in other places. Mm-hmm. So that's my, that's my feedback on, I think Jordan still would have dominated at this point. So here's, here's the thing, I guess. Um, I think that's a, I'm, I'm compelled by that argument. Um, what it has me thinking is that while I agree that Jordan could still get like 40 to 50 any night he wanted, like if he was at his prime right now, he could also get 40 or 50 every game. Um, I guess it's just in my brain that uh, there's like, uh, if I just go down the list right now, I'm thinking there's like 12 guys that can do that right now too. And while Kawhi did it most recently and LeBron has done it like six times, Steph has done it a couple of times. Uh, I think Durant could do it. I think uh, Kyrie could do it. Um, I, th- I think it's what is different now is that there are like 10 to 20 guys in the NBA that could average 40 uh, and could be that person where they define themselves on the right team in the finals like Jordan was all those times. I gotta disagree with. You. I don't. Durant, I I believe you. LeBron, I think potentially. But Steph, I think we saw that. You know, there's a game plan you can put against him. And Kyrie, God, freaking Kyrie is the most overrated basketball player I've ever seen in my life. Um, this idea that he can get any shot he wants is absurd to me because he can, but he misses most of them. Has been my experience <laughs> with him. So that doesn't matter at that point. Um, you know, I would put Dame in that category before I'd put a bunch of other folks there. So, um, but I, I, I don't, I'm not going to, we can't figure this out, but I, I stand by the fact, I think that he would be perhaps with Durant, the, uh, the best players to get any shot they wanted at the time. And I think that speaks to the, the technique Kobe's on record talking about that. Not only was he like the best athlete in the NBA in Jordan, but he was also the one that had the best technical talent to know exactly how to do what he wanted to do at any given time. Right. Right. Again, that tiger comparison, that ability physically to do whatever you want, but then the mind and the technique to be able to do it, pull it out of your bag whenever you want to. And the, whatever that, where I like would argue against myself is that while I think there is more talent in the NBA and um, Michael Jordan, were he to exist right now, might not have had the like cultural impact that he has had because there is so much saturation 
as far as talent. And I think partly what set him apart was that there was less mm-hmm. talent at the top and he was just more, there was more notoriety available to him. I think, uh, I would argue at the same time that, uh, he had what I kind of just at this point in my life think is just a craziness. Um, that competitive, like you've got to be kind of crazy and view the world in a way that like no one else does. And I, I think he had that. Um, well, that's where I, I think I sent you that article, didn't I? About, yeah, um, yeah. he, uh, he's a little bit worried about how people are going to perceive him after this because he was not a nice person a lot of the time. Um, yeah. it had his reasons for doing that, but, um, I think, you know, it's, it, he did a lot of things that you and I, I think would never consider doing because it's what he thought they had to do to win. Um, right. And I, yeah. You know, and, and that is that, that, you know, that's Tiger Woods, that's Kobe yeah. Bryant. It's a small list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't see anyone in the NBA now that's crazy. <laughs> like, no. like they were crazy. Um, yeah. And it's an interesting thing. I don't know your personal thoughts about it, but I I oscillate on it between finding it really distasteful and dangerous, but also having immense admiration for that kind of stuff. I think that part of my dislike for LeBron and um, stuff is because uh, he wants to be like Jordan, but he doesn't have that drive that Jordan had. Mm -hmm. He's more, you know, conscious of, image and of course jordan was super conscious of image but it never detracted from his game like i just and so like you know to see lebron fall apart against the mavericks that was never going to happen with the jordan that we grew up with right Uh, and so like it's it's always like it was with lebron it's an interesting case of you know you're clearly top two players of all time i would argue at this point um uh, but uh, the fact that you want to be this guy, but you can't have that that swag or that same drive that he had, I think means you're never quite going to get to that same level of global mm-hmm. status that Jordan had. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing that likability is a vice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that's where it... it it does become a really important conversation, I think. And this is where I would like defend like the significance of this conversation because in some ways I feel like this conversation dips into the greatest of all time conversation, which is just like, you know, uh, like a, a, a argument you have in the bar yeah. of like, who's the greatest of all time? You know, it's not that conversation we're having. I, I think it, it is the conversation of like, what is being exported mm-hmm. and what is entering the public consciousness and what is being deemed good. So to call Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant great, what are we doing to mm-hmm. ourselves? Uh, and what are we truly applauding and lauding and lionizing and what do we want to like incorporate into our public lexicon for defining goodness? And in that way, that's like, I don't know. I think if I were to really dig in where my internal sympathy for LeBron comes from, is that he's more likable and, and like wants to be liked and that that is a vice when having to exist alongside Michael Jordan has always maybe just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. That he has to be compared to Michael all the time. Mm-hmm. 
is like I want to defend him and say like yeah but he's like a lot a lot of his teammates like him more than mm-hmm. Michael's teammates liked him and like shouldn't we applaud that as much as we do points and rebounds in championships I don't know yeah it is fascinating because I I agree with you like on some level I I want to like that person more um, mm-hmm. but at the same time I think there's a part of me that the fact that you want me to like you diminishes my respect for you mm-hmm. a little bit. And so, you know, I think about, um, if I think about artists, right. So I don't want the author, you know, Camus or whoever, I don't want these folks that I respect as writers to write what I want them to write. I want them to write what they want to write. And then it's up to me to find appreciation or not for that piece of artwork. Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess I kind of find the same thing with with LeBron as and Jordan. It's like you know I think Jordan was an asshole. I think he was terrible to people. I think he made some political things that are still dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. But I still respect him as a basketball player more than I do LeBron because LeBron has that desire and is uh, listening to what I want more. When I just want him to go out and do what he wants to do and not. You know, Jordan, I feel like, never cared if we liked him or not um, on the basketball court. He wanted us, you know, he had this public image that he put out there, but when he stepped on that basketball court, his public image had nothing to do with how he played basketball. Um, I think that's a unique thing, and it's something I I have to confess I respect, even for all the negative connotations and negative impacts that it had. So I might disagree a little bit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I I might say that I um I I need to admit that this conversation is shrouded in my current reading in that I'm reading Robert Caro's biographies on Lyndon Johnson and Lyndon Johnson was a Michael Jordan Kobe Bryant. I mean in my opinion of like power obsessed Mm -hmm. and to be the greatest of all time was Lyndon Johnson's goal from the time he was like 10 years old and so whatever form that took it didn't matter but he adopted this drive to be just the most powerful and the greatest ever Uh, and so in that way I don't think if you if you enter a career or if you enter a profession or if you enter a competition and that's your end goal, it's impossible to separate that end goal from how you play. Into mm-hmm. uh, I honestly, when I see Kobe and when I see Michael and when I see Tiger Woods, as much as I see ambition and drive, I see fear and desperation. Mm. Uh, and I especially see it in LeBron. And in a, it's again, that's where I like feel for the guys because I don't think he feels that like they did um like uh i don't know i just think once michael got down a path to where the incentives just grew and grew and grew to not keep it going would have been terrifying Mm. and if you put the expectation on yourself to be the greatest of all time i don't know if you get to enjoy it along the way unless you are the greatest of all time deemed by the pundits and so you're constantly in fear that you're not going to convince someone. Yeah, I think when well, I think this goes back to, uh, for me, 
the central question of our podcast, which is for me, um, I, I'm a massive sports fan. Um, mm-hmm. and yet, uh, and I love excellence. Excellence is what has driven me as a sports fan. I want to see extraordinary athletes doing extraordinary things. And yet to do that, you have to make yourself miserable on some level. Mm-hmm. You have yeah. to be driven to a level that is unhealthy. Yeah. Um, uh, which is what I really enjoyed about the Djokovic stuff is that he seems to be able to drive himself uh, at this point, uh, now that he's gotten a little bit older, drive himself without being self-destructive in the process. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's super compelling. And I want to think that that's possible, but I think there's a lot of evidence that that's not, that's not how you become, that's not how we get the product that we as sports fans want to see. Mm-hmm. And so that's a guilt that I carry around that uh, I, as a sports fan, am enjoying the suffering of these other mm-hmm. people. Um, and that like my entertainment necessitates their fear and desperation. Yeah. Yeah. That's messed up. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to get out of it. Um, yeah. I think it lends credence to our, our, our hope to f- continually like hone in on the examples of where there is more goodness within it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yes. and to push push back against what I would call just like the Michael Jordan mantra that is uh, laid as a blanket on like everything American, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, just this striving and striving and be great and just like. Um, cut down any opponent or hurdle in your path and just plow through. It's, it's a it's a mantra that um, I, I I think we can honestly like attribute to Michael Jordan as an individual, but also Michael Jordan as a collective entity mm-hmm. that we all took part in. Agreed. Um, yeah. And I think that there's I do cling on to those examples, and I think you know I've I've expressed already on this podcast about how. I am a big fan of the underdogs, and yet uh, I was a huge, and continue to be to some level, a huge Warriors fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when I juxtapose these two figures against each other in LeBron and Curry, uh, that I just I cannot get enough of Steph Curry because his joy at the game and joy in yeah. life seems so unperformative. And so, like mm-hmm. when I look at LeBron, even when I see him on Instagram and he's doing these. He's having fun. He's doing Taco Tuesday or he's dancing with his kids. It all feels yeah. like it's a performance for me. And that makes me deeply uncomfortable. Whereas Steph just feels like he wants to go play basketball. And that's the guy that I want to watch is the guy that just wants to go play basketball. And maybe that's what it is about Jordan that I find compelling on some level versus LeBron is just he off the court. He did all this stuff that was, you know, cultured and, and, modified in some ways but i it always felt like on the court he just wanted to win so badly and it was it was mm-hmm. a dangerous thing but it was never performative it never felt like he was winning because he thought i wanted him to win mm-hmm. um, so maybe that maybe i feel less discomfort in part with him because uh i don't feel like he was performing and doing that on my behalf or because he felt mm-hmm. like i needed to see that in the same way that i feel like some of the kd and them do Mm-hmm. this is really fascinating maybe it could be another topic uh, to keep going on because what that immediately takes me to is a space of privilege mm-hmm. in how 
I think with Steph, you see someone that is permitted and privileged to play without fear. Yeah, that's an excellent Uh, point. um, Whereas, like, I think of LeBron LeBron getting a Hummer when he was 16 and starting the whole process off on the wrong foot. Uh, And, you know, having to play at this private school that made him cover up his tattoos. Um, and the only black people at the school were the basketball players, uh, whereas Steph, uh, growing up with a professional athlete father, um, and how, how that changes who and what he feels like he has to be for mm-hmm. the public. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's fascinating, man. There's a lot there. Yeah. Oof. Um, and even, uh, yeah, that's taking me back to that Shamika Holsclaw Ron Artest mm-hmm. conversation right now. Right, um, right. Hmm. And even Roger Federer. Like, yeah. I mean, all those top four, um, Djokovic is the only one that didn't grow up in, like, uh, upper class. Mm-hmm. You know? Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's not where I expected us to wind up going on this conversation, but... Uh, Me neither. That was fun, though. <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, uh, I, uh, we're getting close to an hour here, so I suppose we should wrap it up here. But yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> uh, we'll be coming back, I think, every week with uh, thoughts about the most recent episodes of the of the documentary. So this will be an ongoing conversation, I think. And uh, I'm intrigued. You know, there's been some folks, some of the reporters out there that are talking about how we're going to get to see a version of Jordan that we didn't get to see before. Um, and so I'm just excited. I, we're hoping, um, I won't promise anything, but there's a local journalist who covered that 97, 98, um, season. Uh, and he was apparently had a bunch of conversations with, uh, the bulls, uh, executive branch who he was like, what are they thinking about? So I, I'm hopeful that we can have him on to share a little bit about that because it was such a unique situation for those that don't know, um, the Bulls had said they would not bring back Phil Jackson for the next year, and Jordan said he would not come back. So they knew this whole season this was the last year mm-hmm. of everything. And the Bulls continued to say things like, we're preparing for the future w- without Jordan, which is the stupidest thing anyone has ever said <laughs> as a sports franchise ever. But, um, yeah, we'll be intrigued. Uh, we'll, uh, there'll be a lot of those dynamics, I think, to unwrap over the next few weeks. Yeah. All right, but uh, thank you, Kyle. We'll be back. Thanks, man. All right, uh, give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this, and uh, we'll look forward to being back with you next week. Thanks, y'all.